Our unison reading this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1-4. through The main idea of this passage is that God desires the well-being and salvation of all people in all societies. And so this is a call to the church to be a praying church. To be a people who pray to the Lord their God. Paul is urging, he's urging Timothy to order the church to be a church that prays. Because God delights in the prayers of his people and he desires the well-being and the salvation of all people everywhere. It's interesting to see that one of the assumptions that Paul is making in this passage and in some ways brings it out explicitly is that the church has a real and a visible uh, presence in society. And the role of the church is to pray for the well-being and the salvation of the people that are in our society, for our societies and the people in it. Let's take a look at our text, and you'll see these things very clearly. And our purpose this morning, is, before we go to prayer, is to simply draw out some general principles about prayer from what's written here. So let's read the text together. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along. It's printed in your unison reading if you have it, or you can turn to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Here's what Paul says. He says, First of all, then, speaking to Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings Be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We're going to draw out four things from this passage that Paul teaches. First, Prayer is of first importance in the life of the church. We'll mention something about that briefly. Prayer is a rich privilege for the people of God. Prayer is to be for all people, and prayer pleases God. I think these things will be encouraging to us. We'll just notice each one somewhat briefly. Prayer is of first importance in the church. Notice that Paul uses the language here, first of all. Now you have to understand the context that we're in in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy about how the church should be ordered and to function as a local congregation, as a church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul makes this explicit to Timothy. I'm writing to you so that, he's very clear why he's writing to Timothy, that you might know how you ought to behave, how one ought to behave or to conduct oneself in the household of God, which is the church, that is the congregation of the living God. Paul is writing to Timothy about the behavior of a church, how it functions. How to order it so that it functions properly. And in chapter 1, Paul tells and charges Timothy that the church ought to be founded on sound doctrine. Preaching is the cornerstone of a good, functioning, healthy church. And in chapter 2, the right response to sound doctrine, the first response to sound preaching to the gospel message is that a church is to be a praying church. A church is to be involved in the activity of prayer. And Paul is about to elaborate somewhat on the great and some detail on how much diligence and effort is put into prayer in the church. A church rightly ordered by sound doctrine ought to be a praying church. The first response of a church to the preaching, teaching ministry, to the truth of God's word, is to become a praying church. So he says, first of all, of highest importance, the first thing a church should be engaged in is praying in response to sound doctrine. It's vital to a healthy church. So secondly, prayer is a great privilege. Look at the four terms that Paul uses here. Paul doesn't simply tell Timothy to pray. He uses these four synonyms, these four 
terms that explain or expound what prayer is and how we ought to think about it and how we're to engage in it. And in many ways, what he's bringing out here is the richness of prayer. What a rich privilege prayer is. These are amazing things to think about. So the first thing that he mentions is supplications. I urge that supplications, he says, ought to be made for all people. A supplication is an urgent, specific need. If you have a need, and there's a, and there's a sense of its need, and you're specific about it, we ought to bring it to God. We make supplications to God because He's commanded us to. You remember 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, where we're commanded to take our cares, our anxieties, and our concerns to the Lord. We're to make supplications to Him. We're to bring to Him our needs and lay them at His feet. Why? Because He cares for them. Because He cares for us. They're important to Him. There's a promise there. God commands us to bring our cares and our supplications to Him because... In Christ, he hears us, and he cares for them, and he cares for us. So what a great, rich, wonderful privilege prayer is we can bring to God our needs, our anxieties, our fears, our concerns, and our cares, our burdens, and bring them to him. And Paul commands us to do this. We ought to make supplications. We ought to bring needs to God. Secondly, he mentions this word prayers. Now, we typically use the word prayer in general to refer to all kinds of prayers, but he's using it specifically here. A prayer is a wish for a good thing. It's the desires that we have for good. Etymologically, the idea, this word prayer that Paul uses means coming to the hand of God, looking for good things from him. We see God as our highest good. We see him as the source of every true good. And we come to him and we ask and we seek those things that we desire, that we want, the goods that we think that we need. We're like little children who come to God as our Father, and we ask Him, can I have? We were once children, all of us, and many of us have children. You know that the children like to come. Mom, Dad, can I? Can I? Can I? Why? They perceive some good. Can I go out and play with my friends? Can I have this toy? Can I spend my time like this? Can I? Can I? Can I? And they're praying to you. They're asking you. They're seeking from you a good from your hand. Can I borrow $20? They're expressing their desires and their wishes to you, looking for good, looking for your permission. Now, in the real world, it doesn't work perfectly, but the idea is is that they come submitting to your goodness, wisdom, and power. Now, I realize with children, that's not always the case. We have to teach them to do that. But every child comes to dad knowing that when they ask, can I, can I, or to mom, can I, can I, that they might get the response, no. And God may decide that it's not what's best and that we can't have. But we come to him looking for the things that are good. So for Christians, what's interesting about prayers is it becomes a spiritual exercise for us. Because implicit in prayer is the idea that we're bending and submitting our wills to God's. We're thinking about, as we bring our desires to God, what it is that we're desiring. And we're seeking to conform our will and to shape our will to his. And so it becomes a whole learning process. There's a rich part of this, and I'm getting into the details of it. I could probably just smooth over it, but I do want to dive into it just a little bit. We trust the Lord. We trust in his wisdom. Jesus tells us in John 15, and he promises us that if we pray according to our Father's will, he will hear us and he will answer us. And so one of the activities of a Christian will be pray. One of the, part of the work that we're doing is seeking to bring God our desires in order to conform our wishes and our desires to his perfect will. In the book of James, James rebukes Christians for failing to do this. (laughs) James chapter 4, you ask and you don't have because you ask wrongly to spend on your own passions. 
And what he's doing there is rebuking Christians for bringing their desires to God and not think about what their desires are and whether they conform to God's will. And so this rich privilege that we have in prayer is bringing our wishes to him, ready to submit to his will, whatever it might be. He might say yes, he might say no. And we're seeking what it is that we're really desiring. We're looking and checking our own hearts. Do I wish and will for the things that God wishes and will for according to his perfect uh, word and revelation? So it's a, it's a great privilege that we have, and it's helpful to us, and it's encouraging to us. So supplications, we bring our needs to God. Prayers, we bring our desires to God. And we lay them at his feet, and we submit them to him and to his care, and we entrust ourselves to him. It's an amazing thing that we have, the privilege that we have in the Lord Jesus to come to God in prayer, to think of God as our Father, and as the source of good and the source of our every supply, every need. Well, thirdly, Paul mentions intercessions. And we can think of intercessions broadly and narrowly. And broadly is really the idea that Paul's getting at here in this text anyway. But broadly, intercession is to stand on the behalf of someone else, to pray in the breach, you know, so to speak. Standing in the breach, praying for someone else, praying on behalf of another. Broadly speaking, that's what intercession is. More particularly, and I think what Paul has in mind here is intercession refers to praying on behalf of another for their salvation praying for the forgiveness of their sins, particularly. Praying that God would apply the application of redemption to someone else, to a loved one, to a friend, to the people in society, to the kings and the high positions and so on. Intercessions is standing in the breach, praying for forgiveness for another person. A really good example of an intercession is Job. If you remember back in the Old Testament, Job chapter 1, verse 5. If you remember in the Old Testament, Job was a very wealthy man. He had seven sons, and one of the things were the practices of their family, because they lived such a rich, luxurious life, is that each son would take a day of the week, and they would host dinner for the whole family. And so essentially, in Job's family, every night was a feast in one of the brothers' house. They would have a feast, and all the sisters would come over, and all the families, they'd have a family day every day. Uh, and it was a, a, what an amazing privilege that they had, but one of the things that Job would do, the text tells us, is every morning he would get up and he would make a sacrifice on behalf of his children and he would pray to the Lord. And the text tells us that he did this because what Job was thinking was perhaps one of my sons or one of my daughters in this feast that they have every night, maybe they sinned against the Lord or maybe they cursed his name and he would intercede for them and he would confess to the Lord that potential problem and he would pray the Lord have mercy upon them and that he would, his forgiveness and his grace and his blessing would be upon them. He interceded for them. He prayed specifically for forgiveness and God's mercy on behalf of another. That's the idea of intercession. Paul commands the church to intercede. (laughs) Intercessions. Interceding for one another. Interceding for the people uh, in our society. The people that we care about. Praying for their salvation. Praying for the application of redemption on those that we know are saved. Thanksgivings is the last thing that he mentions here. A thanksgiving is an expression of joy and gladness for the good things that God has given us, whether that's mercy or the things that we've prayed for, or the satisfaction of a need, or the wisdom of God in denying any of those things. We give thanks to God. The old 1828 Webster's Dictionary defines thanksgiving as the sentiment excited by a kindness received. <laughs> so in other words, thanksgiving is joy. It's expressing our gladness in God for the things that he provides for us. For a believer, of course, this includes even our trials, because in the word, God promises to bless our trials. Everything works for good to those who are in Christ Jesus, who belong to him, who love him. 
And the Lord promises to take our trials and use them for our sanctification. So even the hard things in life for a believer is a reason to be glad and to give thanks to God for. So these are these four nuances of prayer. Notice that they're all in the plural. This indicates that we ought to be doing this uh, regularly. We ought to be doing it often and we ought to be doing it specifically. Making specific supplications, making specific prayers, making specific intercessions, and making specific thanksgivings. This is something that ought to identify a church, its life. The first thing a church should be known for in its function and what it does and the role that it plays is it should be praying in response to the gospel message that it's heard preached and the sound doctrine that it's received. The general principle of prayer, then let's draw this out just really briefly, is that when we pray, we bring our cares and our desires and our joys to the Lord in response to his word. We are talking to God because he has spoken to us in his word in the proclamation of the word, in the revealed word of God. He has spoken to us and we speak to him. And so prayer is an act of faith. The spirit of prayer is, Lord, you have said in your word, you have promised. Therefore, Lord, do (laughs) and act according to your promises. Lord, you're the one who said that you could supply my needs. You're the one who told me to come to you and bring my cares to you and that you would care for them. I believe in you. Lord, act on my behalf. You can see this again in the Old Testament, just really briefly, some examples of this. Go look at David's prayer in 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, and his response to the Davidic covenant. I mean, this is a beautiful prayer. Look at how he prays. Look at how he shapes his prayer. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but I just encourage you to go do that. David's prayer at the end of 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 28, the way that he prays and thanks God for the for the giving of an offering of the nation, for the service of the temple. There's beautiful examples of this. Lord, you're the one who said, you're the one who commanded, and we've responded to you, and we are responding to you. Lord, keep your promises. Daniel in chapter 9 is another really good example of this. In Daniel 9, it's, that's the place where Daniel realizes that God had promised by the prophet Jeremiah that Israel would only be in exile for 70 years, And when that 70 years was fulfilled, God would bring them back to the land. And Daniel has been looking at his calendar, and he realizes that the end of the 70 years has come. And so Daniel 9 is the record of the prayer that he prays in response uh, to that reality. And he essentially says, Lord, you you promised you would bring us back, so do so. so." It's a great prayer. It's a confession of sin as well. But some great examples of, of this in the Old Testament. The spirit of prayer is responding to God's word, his commandments and his promises. Lord, you said, so therefore act. Keep your promise. Lord, you commanded, strengthen me. Give me what what you've commanded, so to speak, and all for your glory. What a great privilege then. What a rich privilege prayer is. What a great blessing it is and promises to be for the people of God. Well, uh, Paul goes on and he says that prayer is for all people. This is who we're to be praying for. It's right for us to intercede. It's right for us to make supplications, not only for ourselves, but especially for, for, the, for people. <laughs> for the people who are on our list, for example, we fulfill this in this way. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people. All people includes all people. <laughs> Anyone. There's no one that is exempt from the list. If the person has died or sinned the sin leading to death, then they are exempt. But otherwise, all kinds of people and all kinds of society. That's what Paul means there. 
And this is one of the reasons he mentions kings in the next place. He is developing a separate thought there. But one of the points that he's making is that even the people that we think don't need prayer, the people we often will forget to pray for, kings and those who are in high positions, we ought to be praying for them. All people. Well, and what we ought to be praying for is two things, and he develops this thought in the next place. We need to pray for the well-being of our societies, and we ought to be praying uh, for the well-being and the salvation of our societies, and we ought to be doing so for the sake of the church. Again, look at verse 2, for the sake of the well-being of the church, for the sake of the, the work and the worship of the church. Look at verse 2 again. He says, we're to pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that... Or so that we, the church, may lead a peaceful and quiet life that is a, a, life of, a, well, a, a life of well-being, a welfare, general welfare, peace and order in society, and godly and dignified in every way. That is the religious freedom of God's people. We ought to be praying for peace and order in society so that the church might worship God, live a godly life, and might do so in a dignified way that is pursuing holiness. So we're to pray for the well-being of society, uh, for the well-being of the church. Again, the church is a real and visible organ of society, and so we must pray for the peace and the order and the quiet of the society for the sake of our own religious freedom, so that we might worship God and pursue holiness with liberty and freedom that we might live godly and dignified way, uh, lives in every way. In other words, putting it in context of where uh, Brother Brent will be preaching to us this morning, we must pray for the welfare of Babylon. We must pray for the good of the city. In her welfare, we will seek our own welfare. And this is essentially the principle that Paul is reminding us of here. Pray for all people. Pray for their well-being. Pray for their salvation. And then finally... Paul teaches us that the reason we do this is because it pleases God. It's good and it pleases God. Look at verse 3. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now in the context, the God our Savior refers especially to God the Father. It is good in his eyes and he is pleased to hear prayers like this. So there's two points to make here. Now I want to draw out both. First of all, God loves to hear his people pray. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. It is good for the people of God to pray. And God loves to hear the prayers of his people. He accepts our prayers in the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. He invites us and commands us to come. He loves to hear God's people pray. And I am reiterating this because I want you to be encouraged that sometimes we are tempted to think that God would not want to hear us pray. (laughs) That we pray weak prayers. We stumble when we pray. We are not as articulate or as sophisticated as we would like to be. And we become overwhelmed with a sense of our own weakness, our own frailty. And we become overwhelmed with a sense of God's awesome majesty and glory and what he is worthy of. And we feel that we fall short. But the Bible uh, reiterates to us and emphasizes to us that God loves to hear his people pray. When his people pray, it is good and it is pleasing in his sight. And I hope that that's encouraging to you this morning as you go to prayer. Now, we know theologically that's on the basis of the blood work of Jesus Christ. But again, what a rich privilege it is to pray. And what a God it is that we serve. Secondly, 
God delights in the welfare and salvation of all people. God is pleased with praying for this particular request that Paul has mentioned. He's pleased with praying for the well-being of society. And he is pleased with praying for their salvation because he delights in it and because he commands it. The highest good of society is her salvation. Again, look at verse 4. Look at how Paul links these concepts together. God is pleased with this. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, we have to interpret the desire here to mean God's preceptive desire. What Paul is reminding us here is that God in the gospel commands all people everywhere to be saved. He commands every man, every woman, every child. He commands the rich. He commands the poor. He commands sinners. He commands all people to be saved. And Paul is reminding us of this here. God's will, his command to all people is to be saved and to know Jesus Christ, to receive eternal life in the kingdom. This is God's commandment for all people. God commands all people to be saved. We ought to be praying then that God would save as many as he will. And again, I want us to be encouraged with this. God commands all people to be saved. He desires your salvation. He commands it. (laughs) It's a a glorious, liberating concept if we'll understand it and, and submit ourselves to it and receive it. We can think of the Old Testament ways that God expresses himself on this point. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God desires salvation in every person. So we ought to pray for every person, their well-being and their salvation. Ezekiel eighteen thirty-two. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. He puts it into the imperative. It's a commandment. I desire this. I'm commanding you. Turn from your sin. Repent. Believe the gospel. And receive everlasting life. God commands all people to live. And to trust in Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 33, 10-11. Again, God expresses this desire. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How can we live? We're so sinful. How can we be saved? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, (laughs) on the basis of my life, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. There's the commandment. There's the word of God and it's empowering strength turn back turn back from your evil ways for why will you die O house of israel again our lord god desires the salvation of all people so very encouraging passage to us i hope it's helpful to you